I mentioned at the beginning of the service that this is a special festival in the church's year called Ascension, uh, which is technically always on a Thursday, but because Thursday is often challenging for people to be able to make it out to worship, it's often transferred to the Sunday after. And that celebrates and acknowledges that 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, we are told in uh, the end of Luke's Gospel and also at the beginning of Acts, which is sort of part two, it's by the same author, that Jesus then ascends into heaven and then he uh, is gone from their sight. And it's one of those important festivals along with Christmas and Epiphany and Pentecost and Easter that the church is obligated, the Anglican church is obligated to, to acknowledge. Sometimes smaller ones like St. Barnabas Day we can miss safely, but these are ones that I'm under obligation to always celebrate. Now that's great, I'm under obligation to celebrate, but honestly, Ascension is sometimes the most difficult one to know how to celebrate. Christmas, you've got some familiar stories there and ones that are obviously full of joy. Jesus, God's own son, is made incarnate and comes to earth. Good news of great joy. Epiphany is wonderful. It's the, the three wise men come to visit and we hear how Jesus first presents himself to the Gentiles and we as Gentiles, as are people who are not of Jewish origin, have hope that God reaches out to us as well. Of course, a Good Friday is really hard, but it's clearly significant. God's own son dies for us and Easter, God rises, uh, God's son rises for us. And Pentecost is the day we'll celebrate next week, June the 9th, when uh, God pours out his Holy Spirit and miraculous signs empowers his disciples who had been scared and frightened before, empowers them to be witnesses to Jesus. But ascension's a little bit difficult because how do you celebrate that God's own son leaves us? That is a hard thing, frankly, to wrap our minds around. Why is this good news for us? And why do we acknowledge it not with tears and mourning like Good Friday, but acknowledge it with joy, with dressing in my fancy vestments today and singing about joy and about God's kingdom? I'd like to tackle some aspects of that today. Uh, and I'd like to speak to you about Ascension because I think it's neglected and unfortunately when we neglect a powerful feast and a powerful action of Jesus, we really miss out on something important. And so I'd like to address why these things are important. But first, just a quick brief word. I always like to give it ascension because for many people, particularly in the modern world, one of the reasons why ascension is neglected is not just because it happens on a Thursday, which is 40 days after Easter Sunday, but also because in many ways it seems difficult for modern people to wrap their minds around. After all, we know that in heaven, if you keep going up, what you end up with is going to space. And this is not a story of Jesus going to visit the moon or Mars. That's not an exciting story, is it? And I don't know why God would say it. In fact, what this is telling us about is not just Jesus going up and up. We're told something really significant that's worth noting. Listen to how Acts describes Jesus' disappearance. This is what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When Jesus had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now that's really significant, because if you know much about the Old Testament, and even in aspects of the New Testament, you'll know that the appearance of a cloud is really significant. It doesn't mean rains on its way. Instead, it means something powerful that God's presence is near. When the temple has uh, when we're told that the temple in the Old Testament is consecrated and the ark is brought in, the ark is where the Ten Commandments sit, what are we told? We're told 
that on the top of the ark are two cherubim, two angels, and the angels are on top of the, the ark, and then we're told that the glory of God sits like a cloud, the Shekinah cloud of glory, up above those two angels. Later, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the entire temple is filled with a cloud, the cloud of God's glory. That happens many times throughout the Old Testament, that a cloud signifies God is present, and then we find in the New Testament what happens when Jesus is on the mountaintop, flanked by two prophets, Elijah and Moses, a cloud descends, and out of the cloud we hear, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's a theophany, it's a place where God appears in the form of a cloud. When we talk about Jesus' ascension, it's not an accident that Luke records an act that not only does Jesus disappear into a cloud, that two men flank the cloud and say, men of Galilee, why are you looking? It's meant to evoke that image of God's cloud, that Jesus goes into the glory of God. So what we're talking about is not something that modern people can dismiss and say this is a space exploration. It's not. Instead, it's a signifying way that God signifies Jesus is in the presence of God. And that's why in the creed we say he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's present with God. Jesus, who loved us enough to die for us, sits at God's right hand, always interceding on our behalf. A man who understands our weakness is in God's very presence, saying, I understand their weakness. Have mercy on them. That's what's significant, first of all, about the physical. The first thing that I wanted to talk about why it's significant for us, however, is not just to dispel some of the challenges we have intellectually. It's also to speak to us in our hearts and our spirits. One of the things that makes it difficult to preach on ascension is actually something that I suggest is a comfort to us when we struggle with doubts and we struggle with the sense of God's absence. It is a recognition that there is a very real sense in which we can feel that God is absent from us. After all, the people here we find in Jerusalem are looking into heaven, gazing into the heavens because the person they love has just been taken from them. And this is something that is very real. From that point on, yes, they're empowered, and I'll talk about the joy. But they also know Jesus' absence because the disciples had been able to always reach out and physically touch Jesus, to physically listen to his voice, and they are no longer able to do it in the same way. And there's a very, very real sense in which this makes us feel God is absent. In fact, Jesus refers to this in John's Gospel about how it is that although there's reason for joy, uh, the Holy Spirit's coming, he also says this in John chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples as they're gathered in the upper room, Are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, A little while you no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn. The world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. He's talking about the absence in Jesus' death when the world seems to believe it's triumphed over God and Jesus returning from the grave. But he's also pointing to the time in which he will be taken from them and there will be cause for them to feel sorrow. And he says that sorrow will turn into joy because he sends, he says, the advocate, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't deny that there will be mourning and sorrow. And for us, I think, when we look at Jesus' absence in the heavens, I think we have to be honest with ourselves in which God says there's a very real way in which we as human beings who have misperceptions about reality can fall into a kind of sadness because we do not sense that God is near. And that is a very real present uh, danger in Christian life because we all, I think, experience times in which God's absence seems an awful lot stronger than his presence. 
You know, one of the things that I've struggled with in my life, I've shared with you freely, is that depression has been one of those things that's bugging me on and off again throughout my life, and I'm not alone in that. We know that uh, rates of mental illness, uh, including depression and anxiety, have been skyrocketing, and particularly amongst young people. There are many challenges where, thankfully, people are more willing to, uh, to admit to these challenges to seek help. But I'll tell you, one of the greatest challenges is not stigma, although that can be a problem when it comes to mental illness. One of the greatest problems that depression brings is that it skews your vision of reality so that the very place you want to turn for help seems like the place you cannot go. I'll tell you one of the most devastating and challenging funerals I ever had to give was a man who had committed suicide. It's always a tragedy. But here's the thing that really stuck with me. In his, in his suicide note, he said to his wife, I know you'll be better off without me. And I can tell the despair and the terrible, terrible hole left in this woman's life as I'm talking with her about her husband and about the funeral arrangements, he was absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Somehow he was in the grip of something that prevented him from seeing the truth, that he is surrounded by people who loved him. And what he needs to do is not withdraw and get away from them. What he needs to do is to reach out to them and say, I need your help. And they would be more than happy to say, I want to help you. I've never reached that point myself, but in my pastoral counseling that I've done, in times I've looked in my own life, I can tell you one of the devastating things that depression does is it makes you believe the people who say they love you don't really mean it. I don't want to reach out to my wife. She says, I love you, I'm here for you, but I don't want to reach out because I'm afraid that I'll be a burden. Counselors who say, look, I have training, there's ways I can help, you can say, you're not going to be able to help me. You can show evidence, you can do lots of things that say counseling helps people, there's medications that can help people, and it is a tendency amongst people depressed to dismiss all of those things, no matter how real they are, because your feelings contradict what the data is. And one of the most important things you can do is to hold up your feelings against reality and say, this is the reality and my feelings need to pay attention to what that reality says. That's how you make your way out. When you lean on the people who genuinely love you and say, they say it, and so I'm going to believe it. Doctors say these uh, medications can produce results. I'm going to believe the data and not my own feelings. And I'm going to turn to the places I need help because I know that sometimes my feelings mislead. But that doesn't change the fact that those feelings are really powerful and will easily help you dismiss the real help you need. I'd like to suggest that the, uh, that the um, ascension of Jesus actually acknowledges this in a spiritual way, uh, what we acknowledge in, in, in depression in a psychological way. It is very easy when we do not see Jesus right in front of us to feel really, really powerfully as if he's not here. And I think Jesus gives us permission to acknowledge that reality. Not to hide from it, but instead to turn to him and say, Jesus, we need your help and signs of your presence and love, because I'm not feeling it right now. The fact of the matter is, is that we live in a world in which our perceptions can be easily skewed, and the ascension of Jesus reminds us of this possibility and encourages us to reach out to him for help. Here's the second thing, though, which I think is not just an acknowledgement about the challenge of ascension, but the hope that we have in the midst of Jesus' absence that he doesn't simply drop the mic and say, see you later, do your best, right? In fact, when you read this gospel uh, passage in the end of Luke, and when you read uh, the book of Acts really carefully, what you'll notice is that something really both challenging and encouraging is going on. Read it carefully, and as you begin in the first verses of Acts, what, this is what you'll hear. In the first book, Theophilus, so this is Luke, who's writing his second book. He wrote the gospel of Luke, and now he's writing the, the book of Acts presumably to a man named Theophilus. And he says, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught 
from the beginning until the day when he was taken up from heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then uh, look how he ends. He says, just before he leaves, uh, Jesus replied, verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or periods the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he'd said this, as they were watching, he was drawn up into the cloud. What's going on here? Luke is portraying a very important shift going on in the focus. Luke's gospel, if you read through it, is all about Jesus, what he does and what he says. Jesus preached this sermon. Jesus touched this leper and made them whole. Jesus helped this person in important ways. Do you notice in the book of Acts, there's a real change. What you see is the disciples did this, and the disciples said that, and the disciples helped this person. What he's saying here is, is that there's an important thing going on between the first part where Jesus is walking the earth physically and when Jesus is ascended. It's not that Jesus has stopped working. It's that Jesus... We see what Jesus does independently, and then we start seeing what Jesus is doing through his followers. And there's where the challenge is for us. Jesus is saying to us, look, I've done these things, and I've shown you how to live. I've taught you. Now you put it into practice, and you put it into practice in ways that benefit and bless the world and help the world come to see who I really am. Now why is this good news? You notice that Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, doesn't just drop his humanity behind and leaves it like an old cloak. In fact, Jesus brings his humanity right into the presence of God. Human beings have now been wrapped up in God's own mission of changing the world for the better. God's own mission is now something that he empowers us and ennobles us to do in the world. And Jesus, when you see his ministry with the disciples, you'll realize that what he's doing there is not just, here's a lecture to listen to, here's my podcast that I want you to subscribe to, here's my self-help book. Jesus is preaching to them, and then he is modeling and doing things. Jesus heals lepers, he preaches to the crowds, and then in uh, Matthew's gospel, we're told he sends out gospels or the disciples two by two. Now you go in into the villages and see how you do, and then they come back, and Jesus debriefs. There's other times where the disciples seek to help a person and they can't, and Jesus uh, gives them instruction and guides them. This is why it didn't work. You uh, need to pray and to fast to cast out this demon. Jesus is a master dealing with his apprentices, and he's teaching them through what he's saying and doing, what the shape of Christian life looks like and how to be a good witness. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. Jesus, when he calls us to come to church, he's saying not, here's your instructions, just go off. He's saying, I'm providing to you a place where you can see other Christians in action, where you can hear the instructions that Jesus gives filtered through a person who's preaching. And he's doing all of these things to say, you're not alone, you're not left helpless. You have others who support you and who can act as the master to your apprentice as you're seeking to live out in the world. You know, I mentioned about some of the challenges that people face today in depression and anxiety, particularly young people. And one of the reasons is, is because many of them feel lost. Many of them feel like, yes, I've gone to university. Yes, I've got lectures. Yes, I've got things to read. But you know what I've never had? I've never had somebody who takes me by the hand and mentors me and shows me how to live in the world. It used to be a lot more common that if you were starting off as the, uh, in the mail room in a company, you could work your way up because somebody above said, you know what? I like the cut of your jib. I think you've got real opportunities. And so they mentor you and take you under the wing and you rise up. Nowadays, it's more and more common that they ask, what's your credentials? So mentoring has fallen by the wayside. 
And yet at the same time, it still is one of the ways in which many people feel real satisfaction in their jobs today because they go through the system that the trades still do. You want to become an electrician? It's not, here's a book, read it and go off. It's you instruct for a couple of days, then you spend a few days with a master electrician who shows you how to do wiring and directs you and guides you. That gives you a sense of direction and place so that you can interact with a real human being. What is church meant to do? It's not meant to be you come here and sit and listen to the guru, uh, come and listen to the podcast and uh, glow uh, as a result of the great things he said. What it's meant to do is to help all of us to learn and grow and be formed so that we can be the witnesses Jesus wants us to be in the world. How do you go and serve Christ in your various aspects of jobs, for example, when you go off in your careers? It's not simply by reading a book. It's by coming and seeing people who have gone through their careers, who are working through those challenging ways in which you serve Christ in a secular environment. You can look to them and say, can I get some advice on that? Can I learn from what you're teaching? Even myself, why I try to always include real-world examples in my preaching is to say, this is not an abstract philosophy. It's Jesus and his teaching and his ways being applied to our daily life. There's a real calling Jesus has honored us with to say, you have a responsibility to show the world what I'm like by your words and by your actions, but I'm not going to leave you to do this by yourself. I'm letting you come as a group into church and to find from other people and from the preaching and all of these things to enable you to be a good servant to me in the world. You have a great opportunity to be mentored and to be helped if you hold the church dear and you weave yourself into the relationships you need to have to help you be formed and shaped by those who are mature in the faith and can show you how to walk faithfully. Here's the last thing, though, and perhaps the greatest joy. Jesus, paradoxically, he says, again, in the uh, section there in John where he's in the upper room, he says, you know, you're going to weep and mourn, but you should be glad I'm going to leave because I will send you the advocate and the comforter, and he is the one who will empower you to do good things in my name. It's an interesting thing where Jesus is telling them at the end of Luke's gospel. He says, you're going to do all these fantastic things. He says uh, in Luke's gospel here, uh, chapter, um, chapter 24, which is the end of the gospel, he says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then he says this. He says, I'm sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. You sort of think, okay, Jesus is instructed. I've walked with you. I've been the master. You've been the apprentice. You know what to do. Have at her. Nope. He says, just stick around. Why? We're going to learn out next week, but I'll give you a little sneak preview. Spoiler alert. Because God will send his own power to enable people to do things that they could not do themselves. It's not just enough that Jesus walked with them and modeled and shaped them and showed them what to do. Jesus knows that as frail human beings, we just can't do what Jesus wants us to do on our own. He says, wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. And the next week, what do we see? These frightened disciples who run away when Jesus was captured, when he was arrested. These frightened disciples who didn't know what to do, that Jesus keeps face palming all the time. It's like, what, why, why do I have to put up with this difficult generation? These very same people rush into the central square of Jerusalem and without one ounce of fear, boldly proclaim Jesus is risen. And 3,000 people that day come to join the church and the church is born. Now, I will speak more about that next week, but it's a really important thing to show. Jesus does not expect us to do things on our own, but instead he leaves us his own power in the form of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says you're weak and you're weary and you don't know what to do, he doesn't say pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Instead, he says, 
turn to me and say, come Holy Spirit, because I can't do this by myself. You are not alone. When you're finding yourself down and finding God is absent or feels absent, turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I need some help, some shaping and practical help, but also turn to the Lord of heaven and earth. For he has promised that his Holy Spirit will dwell with you and that you, in fact, are a temple of God's Holy Spirit when you follow Christ. Ask for God's help, because this is what makes you a witness in the world, that people can see the goodness of the Lord when they see your goodness, reflected, yes, imperfectly, because we're imperfect human beings, but when they see your goodness in this world, they will glorify our Father in heaven, because they will see your good works, and they will come to know that the one who has commissioned you in his name is a good one who loves them too.